Have your Bibles and turn with me to the letter of First John. If you need a Bible, we have them in the back of the room. We'd love for you to bring your, your Bible to church and become familiar with God's good word. We're committed to studying through it. We're currently in our series, The Letters of John. What a joy it's been uh, to see uh, truth, certainty, love at work, God's work in the church for his glory. Today it's my privilege to preach First John chapter 2, 27 through 29. We'll finish chapter 2 today. As you turn there, I want to read Psalm 119, 9 through 10, and it's this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Church, may we seek the Lord and His good word with our whole heart this morning. Look with me at today's passage, 1 John chapter 2, 27-29. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in Him. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. God's good word. We've covered part of verse 27 in our last time together a few weeks ago. But I want to pick up here in verse 27 and conclude the chapter with you this morning. John says, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. The Greek word used for anointing here is charisma. We've seen it already. It means a special, the special endowment of the Holy Spirit. John spoke of our anointing of the Holy Spirit at our salvation. 1 John 2.20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, have, and you all have knowledge. Later, John will say in 1 John 4.4, 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? That verse will preach. We're going to get to back to that. Praise God for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Question 93 in the Word of Truth Catechism asks, What is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and when does it happen? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the action by which God takes up permanent residence in the body of an elect person at regeneration. God's Word is so clear about this, although many are confounded or decided to think of the order of salvation differently. May Scripture reorient our thinking, our tradition, our preference to understand how God works according to His revealed will to us, according to His written word. Paul speaks of this great truth in Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. We have Christ, we have the Spirit. You don't have faith in Christ without the work of the Spirit. Church, the mighty and eternal Holy Spirit abides in every Christian. This is truly good news. 
and a reality we must never overlook or disregard. We have received spiritual life by the providential presence and work of the Holy Spirit to awaken our dead hearts and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a longing to live for God in His glory. Question 84 in the Word of Truth Catechism. How does a person change from spiritually dead to spiritually alive? By God's will alone and according to His sovereign timing, the Holy Spirit causes each elect person to be born again, giving new life and saving faith in Jesus. The Church, the magnitude of this sovereign and supernatural act of God is awesome. Think of how utterly game-changing it is for each of us who are reborn by the Spirit unto saving faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. God speaks of this in Ezekiel 36, 25-27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be cleaned. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Christian, slow with me to really consider this mighty truth. You are not on your own trying to live your best life to honor God and avoid things that you shouldn't think, say, or do. No, God's Spirit, church, is within you and causing you to walk in His statutes so that you are careful to observe His ordinances. This is the Christian life. It is not you by yourself trying to do your best and every moment you think that that is the way it is, is a moment that you disrespect and disregard the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You're not alone. The Holy Spirit's work to show us what's true, what honors God, and not self. Look with me at the second part of verse 27. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. The Spirit abides in us. Salvation is the work of the Lord. It is a great gift. The truth spoken of here belongs to God. John's Gospel, Jesus says famously in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Just a few verses later, talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of truth. John 14, 17. And then just a few verses later, in John 14, 26, He says, The Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 14, 26. And then a few chapters later, in John 16, 13, Jesus said to His disciples, The Spirit of truth, He will guide you into all truth. Truth belongs to the Lord. 
See with me, church, the Holy Spirit's critical work in revealing to our minds the whole counsel of God as it relates to worship, to doctrine, to Christian living, according to God's Word. The Holy Spirit is our ultimate guide, going before us, leading the way, removing obstructions, revealing falsehood, confirming truth, giving us understanding, conviction of sin, making all things plain and clear as to what God commands and calls good. Think about the vital and amazing work of the Holy Spirit in your life every day. Consider with me how you are potentially very guilty of taking Him for granted. And what would it be like, Christian, to truly abide in Him all the more? Church, don't ever forget that the Word of God is the Holy Spirit's Word. 2 Peter 1, 20-21, knowing this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Some people will say, hey, the Bible is just written by men. Okay, God's Word declares here clearly, while the hand of men penned the words, they are the words of God. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That means this is God's Word. This is the Holy Spirit's Word. What this means is that any conviction, any leading, any stirring of the Holy Spirit will never be out of step with the Holy Spirit's Word. Or what you think you're hearing is not the Spirit. This means He will also not give you new revelation, for God's Word declares that the the Word of God, the canon, is closed and is sufficient for all of life and godliness. There is no need for new revelation. So we don't declare we've heard a new thing from God, for that's against the Word of God. All of the leading, prompting, moving of the Spirit in our lives is always in confirmation, affirmation, in line with Scripture. It's always able to be tested with Scripture. Here in verse 27, John says, Lean in. Abide in the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Christian, are you abiding in the Holy Spirit? Holding fast to His Word of truth as it shapes, convicts, and guides you in all of life. Can I say that if you're guilty of hanging your hat or your faith or your Christian testimony on some abiding of the Holy Spirit or some abiding in the Word of God that you did back in the day, that's not abiding. Maybe it was then, but that's not how this works. The true Christian remains, holds fast, doesn't move Without the Lord, we abide all the time in Him. We're so foolish to do anything without the wisdom, the guidance, the correction, the help of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul writes to Timothy with urgency at the end of chapter 3 in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 14-15. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Paul is saying that we, the church, are, are God's conduit of the truth, a pillar of truth, a light to the world. Jesus is the light of the world, but he also refers to us as the light of the world. In Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We're called the light of the world, not because the light originates in us, but because Christ is in us. We're the lampstand for the light. And a bright city on a hill it is. Paul is saying God's truth is to move from Him in and through us. That's a major responsibility. To stand not for what's popular, not for what's easy, not for what other people want to hear, but for truth. Not truth according to tradition, not truth according to the way you like it, truth according to His Word. We are to be pillars of truth for a lost world who is saturated in lies and deception and darkness. But John's not done there calling us to abide in God. Look with me at verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. First, those, who might, those of you who might just be joining us to give you some context, John's reference to the church, the beloved, who he's talking to as little children, he's not giving a, a kid's ministry lesson here. Okay, He's writing to, it, to all believers in the region this letter will be circulated. And he's also not looking to belittle them or be demeaning. No, instead, by using this term, he's aiming to communicate his deep affection for the blood-bought family, their family, and the uniqueness of his authoritative position as a shepherd of the flock. He exercises that shepherd authority here. Now, little children, abide in him. There it is, an imperative command tells the beloved to abide in him. This is not something you might consider later today, maybe next week, that you're commanded to abide in him exercising his pastoral authority to call the redeemed to abide in Christ. In my last sermon, a couple weeks ago, part one of this section we're in, I spent time speaking of abiding, and John continues to press the point here, so I will too. Why? This is needed because it is a crux. Abiding in the Lord is a crux of the Christian life. We do not do the Christian life without this. To abide in Him in all we do and say, never acting according to our flesh, but only according to Christ. We must always be abiding in Christ. To remind you of that word, I've used it a number of times now, the word abide, it means to stay fixed, hold fast, to be grounded, to, to continue the course, to endure, to remain the different ways that word flexes. It's not a coming and going. It's not a sometimes and then later. It's, there's a residency, a dependency. 
Surely John, writing this letter, has in mind the words of Jesus that John wrote of in his gospel, John 15. Very famously, Jesus speaks to the church's abiding in him. I'll remind you of verse 4 and 5, John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you, Jesus says. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. To abide is to stay plugged in to the source of life, which is Christ himself. We do not thrive in the Christian life by turning away or unplugging. Abiding is so critical for the Christian life and testimony. It's like this, to kind of build on Jesus' metaphor. A toaster is no good in the middle of a field to make toast. It only does what it's designed to do when it's plugged in. Same for us. We don't get saved and then go about our lives disconnected. It's when we disconnect. It's when we go about it our way. When we get focused on our agenda that we drift. We, we wander. We slow down. We, we maybe even begin to see and savor sin more than Jesus. To abide is to remain constantly in Christ, pondering His Word, acting for His glory and will, living out of who He is in you. Always utterly desperate for Him. This is why the branch and the vine metaphor is so good and why I often remind us of it. The branch that is separated from the vine is dead. It does not grow fruit. It can't connect itself to the rock or the fence and produce fruit. It only does its job to produce fruit when it's grafted and abiding in the vine. Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. Let this be another announcement of clarity that we are utterly insufficient and desperate for Jesus alone, the vine. Only He is sufficient. And praise God that He's chosen to, to graft us in and make us His, and truly a part of His family. For apart from Him, we can do nothing that is good or God-honoring. The Bible tells us everything mankind does apart from Jesus is evil. That's a big statement. Is evil. Understand, evil is not just thieves and fornicators and murderers, but anything that doesn't rightly honor God in its being, is wicked, is cheating the Creator due honor and glory. Anything not done in faith is sin, Scripture says. Think about that. Think of how absolutely desperate, therefore, for the Holy Spirit I am, not only to be regenerated, to be spiritually made alive, 
but then to, to continually abide in Christ. Church, we must have a right view of ourselves. Apart from Christ, apart from regeneration. Let me give you a few scriptures to remind you of what that reality is. Apart from Christ, Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. The flesh needs the Spirit. Titus 1.15, To the corrupt and unbelieving, those without faith, nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciences are corrupted. Ruined. Unable to do what is holy or under the glory of God. Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? In Genesis 6, God's evaluation of mankind after the fall, his explanation of mankind's condition due to the fall of Adam. Genesis 6 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We're not just talking about the proclaimed enemies of God in the Old Testament here, the bad guys versus the good guys. No. Every man under the fall of Adam, apart from Christ, every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. Meaning it's not truly by faith unto the glory of God. Scripture speaks very plainly to speak of our best efforts of our own apart from Christ. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Polluted menstrual rags is the imagery of our best work apart from Christ. Isaiah 64, 6. What does all of this mean? It means we can do a lot of things with our best intentions, our kindest tone, our most caring touch. But without Jesus, we can do nothing that glorifies God. Nothing that God calls good. We must see that we are utterly desperate for Jesus if we are to do anything God-honoring or eternally good. Let me just say it in case you're still not tracking. You might do the most sacrificial horizontal deed known to man. If not done by faith under the glory of God, you've robbed God of the glory and the honor in that act. Therefore, it's evil. That's the point. Church, we need to die to self and live to Christ. Paul understood this so well. Listen to his words, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. What he's saying there is it's not Christ and me. Like, like I'm doing pretty good and I got Jesus to hold me up when I'm not. No, all of my stuff's worthless. I die, Christ reigns. That's all I want. I don't want any part of me to be part of the equation. It is no longer I who live, he says, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul really understood that everything he did was to be in Christ. 
He was utterly dependent for Christ for everything that was going to be good or God-honoring. How many of us depend on or draw from or look to Christ, maybe just for the big things, if we're even consistent in that, but we shine Him so often in the little things. The daily things, the mundane things. And then how much does that add up to really reveal, I'm not really abiding in Christ. There's a layer here, church, for all of us, me included. Until I really embrace and understand what Paul's saying there, that I have growing to do in my understanding of what it really means to abide in Him every day throughout the day. So just consider with me for a moment the abiding you're doing in the Lord, the prayerful consideration of the truths of His Word as you approach the pantry or the fridge. As you, as you pick up the phone or choose not to maybe pick up the phone. As you, the abiding in Christ, as you drive through your neighborhood. How often on that drive is Jesus back there or at home in front of me? But I'm not desperate for Him praying, walking by faith as I move through the neighborhood as I've done eight gazillion times. What about in that moment when you're running into the grocery store? You're running late. You just got to get that one thing. Do we, do we enjoy the Christian music and we're singing of our Lord until we park and then we're a total nightmare until we're back in the car? yelling at the person in front of us because we've got an agenda and clearly that person's not thinking of me. Maybe as you flip the channels, as you browse the feed, to abide in Him as you show up to an event in the middle, in this very moment, church. So I just ask you, how are you abiding, staying fixed, remaining, being desperate for Jesus in all things? That Paul's words, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Is that a reflection of your life? And if not, praise God for conviction this morning to stir us unto that. That I confess any part of my laziness of my flesh that's been content to Paul's really great. I'll never be like him. I'm good where I'm at. We must never be out of step with the gospel. It's the word of the Lord, the work of the Lord in and through us at all times as we abide in Christ. Listen to verse 28 again. Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. John says we are to abide in Him so that when He appears, we have confidence. We don't, we're not guilty of the flesh of shrinking back, of tucking behind the bush, of letting someone else handle the heavy lifting. No, we're fixed in Jesus. We're grounded in Jesus. Our faith is not something on the shelf. It's not something I'm just doing on Sunday mornings or at a prayer time meal. Or worse, it's not something I'm just clinging to from back in the day. 
My faith in Christ is something that I'm practicing. I'm living in. I'm fixed on Him so that when the testing comes, my roots are deep. That's the blessing of abiding. Your roots, as you've been fixed in the Word, walking in true community to be reoriented to Jesus in all things, talking in him, with Him in prayer, your roots are deep. So when the storm slams into you, you've you got to hold Whereas when we don't abide, then our roots are shallow and, and, I'm, and I'm vulnerable to be just swept away. To, to be tossed to and fro, as Scripture teaches about it. Undone. Our faith in Jesus is something we practice. And John's acknowledging here there's going to be ways and times where that devotion to Christ, that faith in Christ, that abiding is going to be tested. And maybe before we get to the one he's speaking of, I'll just speak of maybe some ways this has happened for you already. Maybe it's been greatly tested among unbelieving family or friends or co-workers. Maybe it's been tested among the pressures of civil authorities or the threats of loss of God-given freedoms. Maybe it's been tested among a relationship with someone whereby you are tempted or are tempted to shrink back and compromise in order to keep the relationship. One of the ways Christians do experience great testing is in face of the violent enemies of Christ, terrorists, cult leaders, who this very day will call upon a proclaimed Christian to renounce their faith so that they're not beheaded or executed or tortured. Will we shrink back? Or like Stephen, pray for our oppressors as we look to glory and say, Lord, here I come. Will we be ready to stand at His second coming if God so wills that we are present when that happens? You you might quickly think, well, that's going to be a great day. What's going to be tough about that? I mean, just take all the ways that the world genuinely hates Jesus, Christianity, the Word of God, the church, and then multiply them to the X factor. To stand with Jesus on that day is to stand against the rage of a world that hates him. Will we be ready to lose it all for the name of Jesus? Jesus was clear to say in Luke 9, 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So Christian, I ask, are you so abiding in Christ, so in love with him, so full of faith, that if everything in your life got stripped away and all you have is Jesus, you are satisfied and faithful? 
Are you ready, as Paul says, to count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord? For His sake, you're ready to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that you may remain in Christ. It's a paraphrase of what Paul proclaims in Philippians 3.8. Christian, are you ready for Jesus' return? Jesus himself said, we must be ready. Matthew 24, 44, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And I know each of us have had those parts of our journey where we have some plans that we haven't wanted to see upset. To get to the altar, to, to get to graduation, to, to get to that next tier in the job, to, to finally go on that vacation, to... to to see a child born, to see a grandchild, whatever those things are. And we're guilty of over-gripping those things in such a way where we hold them against God in our hearts. Instead of realizing that it all belongs to the Lord, today He's given, and if today be the, the end, then praise God, I get to be in glory with Jesus. Or if today it all gets stripped away so that I get to glorify God, so be it, my life belongs to Him. Talking to one of our young sisters who is in the middle of some great oppression, government, societal oppression right now, and much of the labor of her many last years is about to be completely thrown in the garbage. It was just a sweet moment to fight the flesh that wants to be upset wants to say, but I had a plan. And gets to say, but I belong to Jesus. So what does he have for me now? God's at work. Not forsaking me. Okay, Lord, let's go. Christian, are you aware just how short this life is in comparison to eternity? It is very short. And so we must make the most of it. There's no time to waste. Every day needs to be preciously treated and stewarded with much respect and honor for God. We need to be focused on what really matters, the work of the Lord. Our overclinging to the temporary must be adjusted so that we're content and motivated to steward the things as He gives them to us, not as we want them to be. Listen to how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For this present form of this world is passing away. Now, to be clear, so you don't misunderstand, married person, he's not saying go home and completely ignore your spouse. But in the reality of the urgency of the day we're in, and not promised tomorrow, and eternity is coming, there is a way we steward well the things God puts before us with a very loose and right grip that they're not our joy, our satisfaction, our identity, And so the moment you acquire those goods, you're ready to be without those goods. 
And every day the Lord gives you in marriage, you steward it well, but, but it's not your identity, it's not your hope, it's not your future. There's a, a change of our grip from the temporary and that which is momentary to the eternal. The time is short. The Holy Canon of Scripture concludes. Revelation 2.20 Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Are you ready? Or are you the one who is guilty of not getting your house in order? Guilty of always postponing God-given priorities and saying, I'll get to it soon. I'll be back to it. Let me just work a little longer. Let me just rest a little longer. Let me just sin a little longer. Christian, we can't delay. We must abide in Him today and every day the Lord gives us under the sun so that we're ready. Truly ready. Jesus says this in Matthew 25, 1-13, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us, for you, and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. That feast is going to be so marvelous, church. Afterward, the other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. There's many things to take away from this. I don't have time to exegete the whole passage, but I'll lift out these few priorities. There's a call to urgency. He's given you today. Some, some of you are guilty of knowing the answer. You know what you need to do. You, you put it in the prayer request every week, but you're not doing anything different. Let us be good stewards. Let us be ready. Let us abide in Him fully now. Quickly may I point out the five virgins who were bad stewards is to point out a, a lack of readiness, but, but, but also what we see in the text and its context is not that they lost their salvation. Did you catch that? He never knew them. Right? So if you're truly belonging to Christ, you're not going to somehow steward your true faith wrong and then be rejected. Don't take that from that. That's not what that's saying. But what it is saying is that the person who truly belongs to Christ abides in Christ. 
beloved. It's not okay to put the things of God aside. Get back to them later. The time is short. The time is now. 1 John 2.28 Can I just say this? I didn't share it with First Service. I'll say it now. We are quick. We're arrogant. to. We're assuming that we're going to live longer. I was at a funeral yesterday for a father my age, 44. I'll be 44 next month. He's 44. Died of a heart attack a few weeks ago. Like that. No sign. No problems that were seen. Just dead. So you can imagine for me sitting there. Lord, let me be a good steward of today. You might not give me tomorrow, right? That's true. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Before we move on quickly, confidence in Christ. Confidence is boldness there. As we translate that, it's courage. Hebrews 4.16, let us come with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Christian, do you stand tall in your faith, not because you are something, but because Christ is everything? Do you have confidence? Again, don't see you apart from him. That's not the Christian life. Confidence because you're in Christ. Do you wake up each day full of faith when the world and its evil are beating on your door? Because you belong to Christ. Do you have confidence of who you are in Christ and who Christ is in you so that nothing can touch you? Jesus said it well, Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. We see the giants of faith in Scripture who died young for their faith, murdered, killed, and their faith's at work. Giants of the faith have come before us even in recent history, burned alive, praising the Lord, praying for their oppressors. Faith's at work in the middle of the body being murdered, torn apart. Jesus says, rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We sang about it earlier, right? He's for us. Who can be against us? Christian, let those not just be words. Let that be the reality of my faith. Your faith abound as we abide in Christ and all that He has entrusted to us. Look with me now at verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. First, first see with me, John grounds his point in the fact that the righteous have been born of Him. Born of who? Born of God. Him who is righteous. Jesus' words about new birth are are given to us in this sweet interaction in John chapter 3 
1 through 3 is Jesus interacts with a very famous, very educated Jew, Pharisee, leader. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A couple things quickly on this passage. Whenever you hear those words, truly, truly, twice like that, it's a way of saying there's great emphasis of truth here. Do not miss this. Okay? So I say that to you because truly, truly doesn't hold that weight. If I walk into the room with my kids, I say, hey, truly, truly, and then I say what I'm going to say, they're going to keep doing what they're doing. But if I say, stand up and look me in the eyes and listen, right? That's what truly, truly is meant to be doing here. Okay? Just in the way that we under, would say that. Okay. Jeez. So when Nicodemus says, we know, Jesus is saying in his reply, you don't know. And here's how much you don't know. What Jesus is saying is no amount of human knowledge, reasoning, will bring you to spiritual understanding. Only new birth. What is dead must be made alive. Later, the imagery in New Testament, the deaf hear, the blind see, the dead can't believe. They must be made alive to believe. New birth is required. This is Jesus' point about the Nicodemus. All these things you know, it's, you have nothing without new birth. You don't know the kingdom of God. You don't know who I really am. Not in the way you need to know me. And this is a shocking indictment for Jesus to say to Nicodemus because the faithful Jews believe they're good with God because of the lives they lived to the law. So when Jesus says, unless one is born again, game changing. The word again there, literally translated, is from above. From top down is what that word means. He says, unless one is born from above. I ask you today, are you born again? Not, are you born? I know that you're sitting here. Right? You're physically born. Were you spiritually born? See, because of Adam, we're all physically born, spiritually dead. Are you born from above? From God? Listen to the words in Gospel of John, chapter 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he's talking about the Christians, those who were saved, give the right to become children of God. He talks about how, they, how that happened. Who were born not of blood, quickly, that means it had nothing to do with their heritage, their lineage, right? Many of the Jews believe because they were of the house of Moses or whoever that they're good. No, that doesn't dictate spiritual birth. 
Paul said specifically that in Romans 9. I'll come back to our text. 6 through 8. For now all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Talking about the Old Covenant. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. God's elect of Israel and of many other nations is who the children of God are and are saved. Just because these people had heritage didn't mean that they were part of God's forever family. Back to John 1, 12. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. The, the flesh doesn't want God when it's dead in sin. It doesn't will for God. It doesn't choose God, even though maybe you were taught that that's possible. The scripture doesn't teach that. No, first you must be born of God. Look at it with me. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Praise God for the sovereign grace of God to save many and make us alive in Christ. Praise God that salvation belongs to the Lord and not to my heritage or to my will. You realize we're all in trouble if that's the case. First John 2.29 If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. So, First, I wanted us to see new birth correctly. What is he talking about? Second, see that John once again proclaims that Jesus is righteous. Where did he proclaim it already? This is the last verse of chapter 2. Just take a quick look at the first verse of chapter 2 with me. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is truly righteous in every perfect way that one can be righteous. Word of Truth Catechism says it well. He's morally pure, without any sin. He is holy in relation to every aspect of his nature and character. Purity and the sum of all moral excellency are found in him. That's how righteous he is. Right? Paul spoke this way to the church in Ephesians 4, 22-25. Uh, through 24, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The person who is not yet born of God still lives for his or her deceitful desires in their flesh. The desires of the flesh equals a life of unrighteousness. But the one born of God lives righteously after the likeness of God who is truly righteous and holy. Peter also spoke this way. 1 Peter 1, 14-16 As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance when you were enslaved in sin. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
As it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This call is the effect of God's life-giving word that brings us out of rebellion into a submissive attitude of faith. The effectual call of God and a kind of summons from the king of the universe. John 6.44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Praise God that he has caused us to be born again. And with this then comes truth. And it comes righteous living. We're no longer foolish anymore like a child who chooses the nickel because it's bigger than the dime. That's, that's the degree of our foolishness and our sin. We're no longer ignorant of God's infinite worth and holiness. Once we were blind of the value of God. Only in Christ are we able to assess things as they really are. Only in Christ do we see the holiness of God as the supreme value in all the universe. So we no longer conform to the madness of the world. We conform our lives to the holiness of God. 1 John 2.29 again, If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. We understand what new birth is there. We understand that He is righteous. Understand, church, that living righteously is the way of the Christian. And it's not just rule keeping. Jesus says, John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Yes, amen, that's true. But it's more. Why? Because the Pharisees kept the rules religiously, but missed the sanctified holiness that was the result of Christ in them and and progressive sanctification of their hearts and lives. So it's not just external modifications. It, It transforms our life. In all of its ways, Pastor Kevin DeYoung said it well in his book, The Hole in Our Holiness. I commend that book to you. It's a great read. Um, Read it recently with Noah and took our time to walk through. It was great. Um, He says this there. To employ a metaphor, you can think of holiness as the sanctification of your body. The mind is filled with the knowledge of God and fixed on what is good. The eyes turn away from sensuality and shudder at the sight of evil. The mouth tells the truth and refuses to gossip or slander or speak what is coarse or obscene. The spirit is earnest, steadfast, gentle. The heart is full of joy. Instead of hopelessness, it's patient instead of Patience instead of irritability. Kindness instead of anger. Humility instead of pride. Thankfulness instead of envy. The sexual organs are pure, being reserved for the privacy of marriage between one woman and one man. The the feet move toward the lowly and away from the senseless conflict, divisions, and wild parties. The hands are quick to help those in need and ready to be folded in prayer. This is the anatomy of holiness. So I just want to ask you, Christian, are you obedient? Are you practicing righteousness? This is where John's going to go in the coming parts of the text. But 
Are you conforming your life to God and His holiness? Or are you still linked into the passions of the flesh? Because the one born of God will abide in Him and it will produce growing righteousness in our living. It's not something we get to be dismissive about. I'll get to it later. God's elect exiles are obedient children. We're men and women who don't conform our lives to the passions of the flesh, but to the holiness of God. And I just ask you, are you that person? When we wake up in the morning, do you step into your day with the aim of holiness? Or is God a neglected side thought? Are you ruled by your personal goals and desires? Or are you joyfully a child of God, called and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do God's will and desires? We must abide in Christ in all things, abide in His written word. This is for our good and the glory of our Lord. It's what the Holy Spirit abiding in us looks like and what it looks like when we abide in Christ in all things. By God's grace and for His glory, may it be so. Pray with me. Lord, You are good. You are worthy. You're holy. You are life. You, you are love. And You've done the most amazing thing to purpose Your Son, that Christ would come and live without sin and die a brutal, excruciating death, but more so take on the wrath we deserve for our sin. We who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, who have trusted our lives to You in faith, who now belong to You, Lord, I thank You for the ways that You have worked us out today. That if we go to the gym and we're not sore when we leave, we did something wrong. But when we come face to face with Your good, holy Word, it doesn't work us out, stretch us, cause need for maturing of muscles and taking us where we need. Lord, This help us to see this is You loving us to bring conviction, to bring humble repentance, to bring genuine abiding and obedience. We want to be Christians. We want to be a church that is defined by Your Word, not by our preference, not by our culture, not by our tradition. Thank you for those who have gone before us. Thank you for Paul and his words. Thank you for this Word of God given to us to know You, to live for You. We are so thankful for You. Hear our praise in this song, in our response, in our time with You in the hours and days to come, if You so will it. May we praise You and live for You. In Jesus' name we pray.